Today is Wednesday. It's August 23rd, 2023, and it's hot in Chicago. Hi, I'm John Williams, and this is the Mincing Rascals podcast, portions of which are frequently broadcast on WGN Radio, Saturday nights at 8 o'clock. You can always listen to me weekdays from 10 to 2 on WGN Radio. What's up? It's Brandon Pope, host of On the Block on Block Club Chicago's WCIU show um, and the host of the Making Podcast from WBEZ. Hello, Anna Devlantis here. Um, I'm a journalist, investigative journalist. I work for WGN. Happy to be with you today. And I'm Eric Zorn. I'm the editor and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a fine Substack newsletter. Eric's uh, screen, uh, what do you call that? Your background photo, Eric? My Zoom background, yeah. Is what? It's from Death Valley. (laughs) (laughs) What's hotter? (laughs) I said, no, that's actually State Street today. Is the city like losing its collective mind? And are people like me somewhat responsible because... It's supposed to be about 100 degrees today and tomorrow, and the feels like is 115, and boy, are we reminding people of that. I think it's, well, I, I think it's responsible to tell to remind people that it's hot out there and that, and that heat can overcome you at times, and that it's, it's not, nothing to fool around with, especially if you are uh, of a certain age or have, certain, have health problems. Uh, so I, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like you're fanning the flames, John? Or, no, but or? I feel like all that advice, like drink liquids, try to stay out of the heat, are such... I've never heard somebody with a helpful tip this time of year go, wow, I never thought of that. I should go in the shade instead of the sun. Thank you, radio show. If you can't figure it out, I don't think I can be much help. Where it makes the most sense, I think, is like the pets. It's a good reminder when it comes to pets and stuff about the heat. And plus, I mean, when you got Midwesterners, we ain't used to heat like this. So, I mean, all the reminders, I think, probably help, but I'm with you. Some of it's kind of obvious. Yeah, I think I should drink some water. Probably every day I should drink some water, yeah? Before. Oh, my gosh. How many times have I been assigned to cover the heat story? Go on and cover the heat story. Oh, okay. Uh, hey, is it hot? I mean, what what's a new turn, spin on this? We've heard everything, right? I, what I will comment on is I just feel like we have had the most spectacular summer imaginable That's the in thing. Chicago. Yeah. I mean, how many hundred or 90-some degree days normally have we had by now? I don't even – I haven't even checked the scaling. All I know is it's felt beautiful in the city, and it's like, you know, here we go. We got a little bit of heat, and we got to deal with it for a little while. All right, let's move on to uh, more pressing news today. The Republicans debate tonight. It'll be the first official televised gathering of the top eight 2024 presidential hopefuls, or maybe there will be just seven. The North Dakota governor heard himself playing basketball and might not be able to stand at the podium tonight. Quick sidebar, by the way, Vivek Ramaswamy has a solid forehand, according to video I saw this week as he was doing his prep. I know our conversation today may seem dated after this evening because they're going to debate in just a couple of hours, but I think we can safely talk about the field, hopefully in helpful and general terms. And I'll just start by saying this. At a time when Donald Trump does seem to be in serious legal peril, legal peril, where do his supporters go if he is not available or viable? That is, if circumstances make Trump unavailable for the general election, who do they like? And I think, well, it's not going to be DeSantis or Pence or Christie. And think about that for a second. Mike Pence, not Mike Pence. Trump's such a cult of personality that his own vice president, who did everything for him but cheat on January 6th, is too many of Trump's supporters tainted. Among Republican primary voters, Mike Pence's unfavorables are second only to Chris Christie. Christie's at 60, Pence at 53. So further down the line, Anna, you go first. 
You got Nikki Haley, Ramaswamy, Tim Scott. Maybe you don't even like the premise, that is, the notion that Donald Trump might somehow not be available to the general electorate. A couple things. One, you mentioned Doug Burgum and his Achilles issue. I'm, uh, I was disappointed for him for that, but I'm also disappointed for me because I really don't know anything about Doug Burgum. I was trying to figure out who Doug Burgum was and you know what, what, what's, what he's going to say when he gets on the stage tonight. So maybe he will be. Uh, it'll be interesting to learn more about some of these candidates we don't we, that aren't as aren't getting as much of the oxygen in the room. But regarding the, the Trump thing, I, I feel like it will be. It's interesting to see who's going to position themselves this debate stage and beyond as kind of punching at Trump or even take even, you know, trying to walk a line. And, you know, because it feels like they must be thinking exactly what you are, John, if he doesn't, if he isn't on the ballot, if he doesn't, you know, run or these legal troubles take him over, who will be able to step up and, you know, who will get his his followers? And it won't be the people who take any shots at him. Right. It won't be the people who uh, who are doing anything other than saying really favorable things about him. But then you run the risk of not getting any moderates within the party. So it's it'll be interesting to see the for me, interesting to see the positioning from a strategic perspective for all of the different campaigns. Yeah. Um, and who's, you know, all the people as just tonight and, and moving forward as well. Anna makes a good point, which is that if there's some circumstance under which Trump is not on the ballot, if he doesn't win, he somehow doesn't win the primary. I can't imagine that any legal problems that he's going to have are going to keep him from running because his sense of, of martyrdom and persecution is what animates his campaign right now. It's like that's how he's getting a lot of donations. He is proudly announcing that he's going to be arrested he is using this as as fuel for himself so i can't i can't see a legal problem to him but you know he is a, an elderly man uh not in the greatest of shape and health problems could easily overtake him or joe biden in the next what you know we, we have still about 14 months to go uh so that could happen and but anna's exactly right that if you really alienate trump supporters if you come on like chris christie and he's the only one so far who's really been slugging at trump uh, then you may lose those voters. Um, on the other hand, if you're talking about a general election, I think that, that voters out there, I think a lot of Republicans out there, the uh, the indoor Republicans, the what I call the knife and fork Republicans, they're the ones who are are going to be looking for someone who is going to signal a return to normalcy. And Chris Christie might end up being that person if he could skate through the primary. Chris so Christie, interesting. Just, it's a tough line to walk for these guys because because you alienate the base, then you're not going to make it through the primary. But if you alienate <clears throat> moderate voters, who a lot of whom have had enough of Trump, then you're not going to make it to the general. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how they walk those that line. I get that. It seems that the Trump supporters don't care if they win the election or not. They just want to win the primary. If you were able to step back and look at this, you might think Donald Trump is not the best horse to ride in on. Who among these other candidates is, I don't know. That's kind of what I'm wondering here. But it seems like they don't care. I know the polls, last poll I saw had Trump and Biden at 42 and 43, so it's even. But it almost seems like they're not going to abandon their guy, even if they're going to go down next November with him. Yeah, they seem they seem unshakable at this point, right? And that's I think that's the big enigma and the thing that all of these GOP contenders, they're going to be on this stage and the major elephant in the room is like, do any of them even have a shot here? And, and the most fascinating thing for me is, 
Ron DeSantis, who everyone framed as having probably the best shot, especially after the pri- uh, after the primaries and the midterms. Um, he had a huge wave. Like it seemed like everyone talked about a red wave happening around the country. It didn't happen, right? But in Florida, it did. And so he could have had this wave of legislative accomplishments and gone on and did, did something there. But his campaign has been struggling bad. They've had to scale back. They've laid off about 40 campaign staffers. Um, they're struggling with money. Um, and now they've shrinking from a national campaign to an Iowa-focused campaign, saying they're going to go to all 99 counties in Iowa uh, and banking all their hopes on winning the Iowa caucus. Um, that's not what exactly was charted out for Ron DeSantis at first. And so it's a fascinating thing to see. And if he's the, the person who's supposed to be the, the one that's challenging Trump the most, and he can barely even crack, you know, 20 percent. 30%. It's tough going for everybody else. I know Vivek is, is rising. Um, the Chris Christie thing is very interesting because his strategy is New Hampshire. Um, and I've seen some polls in New Hampshire having him second, some having him third. Um, so maybe pulling off New Hampshire, that's really his focus there. But um, none of these guys have a shot because these Trump supporters, I, I was talking to a good friend of mine who he is not a Trump supporter, he would say, but he is a Trump sympathizer, which is interesting. That's the worst yeah. kind. He said, listen, man, every time Trump gets arrested or charged, he's like, it only makes people like me support him or want to support him more because it does feel like a little too much. They they all think that there, there's too much being done here. That's it's going too far. And Trump is riding that wave. So the messaging is there. Is it enough to win a general? I definitely don't think so. Um, but I think there's other factors that are going to hurt Joe Biden, too, in a Trump Biden election including a possible third party challenge, which uh, could really hurt Joe Biden. So we got a lot to see in this next year, but I don't expect this debate to really be that consequential. Um, You're going to have one day of a fundraising bump for these candidates. And then Thursday, Trump goes in. He takes all the attention away again. Right. He's going to be a vacuum. Well, he's got maybe the simulcast of his interview with Tucker Carlson, too. So (laughs) that, too, that, too. (laughs) Didn't he say something like he'll be auditioning for his uh, cabinet from the debate stage today? This will be this is what he looks at it like, an audition to see who gets to be in his cabinet. (laughs) Yeah. Carrie Lake said. Carrie Lake, not that she's up on that stage, but she said, when asked about her running again, said, well, I don't know if I'm going to run again for the Congress. I might be a senator, but I might be in Trump's cabinet. I don't know what I'm going to, what's, what's there for me next. She's jockeying for position out in Arizona. I think that's a big reason why a lot of these guys aren't attacking Trump. They are still trying to appease to him. They know the math. They know they got a long shot. Like a guy like Tim Scott. Tim Scott does not really think he's going to win the GOP nomination. Like Tim Scott's plan for VP. That's the play right now. It's probably a smart play at this point. But if you want to win, that's it. You got to you got to take shots. You got to punch. At least Chris Christie is doing that. I'm surprised Ron DeSantis is so staunchly not doing it. If he wants to actually edge out, bro, make the differences clear. Show the starkness, right? He's not doing it. Well, you know, we, we were speaking with the disadvantage of this thing having, not having happened, and most people listening to this podcast after the debates happen. But somebody needs to have a breakout moment, right? Somebody needs to have a, a line, a zinger, uh, with somebody that gets the audience ooing and eyeing. Uh, and there are people like, you know, I mean, Nikki Haley could, could be that person. Um, uh, DeSantis could be. Uh, probably not Pence. People know Pence pretty well. I don't know if Asa Hutchinson is uh, sharp enough. And Tim Scott, a lot of people don't know Tim Scott yet. Tim Scott's got a good resume. He's a good speaker. And same with uh, Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy is a good, really good talker. Um, and he has this uh, 
inspiring and radical vision for the country that I think people are going to are going to glom onto. I, I I would look. This is this is silly to make this prognostication when everybody already knows, but but I would look for the headline tomorrow if, it's, if there is one out of this debate to be uh, either Ramaswamy or. Scott. I'm completely with you on that. And I'll even narrow that. I'll say it's going to be Ramaswamy. That guy is dynamic. Uh, We said last week, I think he is to the presidential field what Tucker Carlson is to journalism. A a guy with a lot of talent and brain power who's wasting it. He he just reminds me of Obama. I mean, he does. Uh, He's super bright. He's engaging. He 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 just knows how to frame an argument about absolutely anything and not make you hate him, even if you disagree with him. Um, I, I just think he's got that power of communication and connection that in a politician can be pretty dangerous. You know, that's a that's a really a, a big thing. I think the other thing that stands out to me about just in general politics, just kind of a fun fact, is the the, the fact that to get on this stage, you had to have 40,000 individual contribution contributors, um, at least 200 from each state. And so. The really rich guys just decided to go out and get college students to pay them a dollar to get it. They gave them a $20 gift card for donating a dollar. <laughs> I'm like, if we don't think we have too much money in politics, I mean, if we don't think there's a problem, I mean, like, this is how you get on the debate stage. I mean, like, really? I mean, I know you still have to pull at 1% or something, but that was that was a tactic that Borgham used and also Asa Hunts- Hutchinson. Hutchinson, yeah. It really is buying votes, but it's it's buying points to get on a stage, so maybe that's not illegal, but it does seem to be kind of a workaround, the intent of what we're doing here. The truth is, John, that someone who has that much money is automatically somewhat viable as a candidate, like Bloomberg four years ago. I mean, it's like, you've got all this money you can put into advertising, so it it's, it's sort of self-validating in a way, in terms of just being someone who can get a message out. So I don't I don't have a problem with them buying the their way onto the debate stage. I mean I have a overall problem with the uh with the power of money in politics, but this this seems like just another aspect of it. Ramaswamy is interesting to me too. So I just here's the wiki on him since we're on him just a little bit. He was born to Indian immigrant parents, graduated from Harvard, graduated from Yale, graduated summa cum laude from Harvard, got his law degree from Yale. Uh, he's from Cincinnati, Ohio. His father was an engineer and patent attorney for General Electric. His mom, a geriatric psychiatrist. Ramaswamy often offended the local Hindu temple. No, growing up, Ramaswamy often attended, not offended, <laughs> the local. <laughs> you know, although I'll bet he did both. You know, I was talking to Leland Vittert, uh, who interviewed him for News Nation, and he said that this guy kind of doesn't care. He is so interested in the dynamic of the debate, you wonder what he really thinks or feels. He's a bona fide provocateur, but does he really mean the things that he's saying? Leland said, you can't eliminate the Department of Education, and you probably wouldn't, I don't know if he would, pardon Donald Trump were he elected and Trump found guilty. Among other things, he said... The policy with China and Taiwan is to give everybody in Taiwan a handgun. You know, that's not all he said about Taiwan and China. But, I mean, he also said that. And you're thinking, those are really clever quips. They get people talking or bitching or whatever. But what what's the purpose of all of that? And made hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe there's some debate about how much money he really has. Some of his business ventures have gone south, but he said when he graduated from Yale, he had already made $15 million in the biotech and investment space and has continued to make money. His campaign is largely self-funded. 
Oh, well, yeah. the voting age thing, where he wants to raise the voting age to 25. Yeah, yeah, right. Unless you pass a civics test. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And one last note. He's promised to pardon Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, besides the president. He has also indicated an openness to pardoning Hunter Biden if convicted of crimes. In the interest of moving the nation forward, he suggested that if nominated, he might consider Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as his running mate. And that's when I stopped reading. That's... <laughs> That's a guy who is interested in getting some attention. Well, and being he, from Ohio is really shocking. I, yeah, I, did not, about I was that? not aware of that. Basically, Brandon Pope's age, right? I mean, he's a young guy with a lot of future in front of him, just like Brandon Pope. <laughs> I, I, I bet you he's one of those. Uh, he's one of those Ohio people that probably roots for Michigan. Oh, my. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. One of the good ones. One of the good ones. Oh, I was thinking about you, Eric, though. Just I brought in my article about uh, Jim Harbaugh, who has been suspended for three games from Michigan because of NCAA infractions, which seem rather minor, but they're going to have to beat East Carolina without Because of a cheeseburger, John. Because of a cheeseburger. Yeah, what was that? He bought a sandwich for somebody. Is that it? Well, that's he, literally it. Right? My understanding, well, my understanding is not only he did that, but then he he lied to he lied. people who are who are looking into it about what had happened. And the other thing that's confusing about this, and this is pretty deep in the weeds, is that as last I checked, the NCAA had not signed off on this suspension that Michigan had volunteered right. to suspend him for the first three games of the year, which are cupcake games for Michigan, ranked number two ahead of the Buckeyes. I want to say. Um, and so it's like it's, it's, it was almost a little bit like that Pat Fitzgerald suspension of two weeks in the middle of summer. It's it's a more serious incident, but I'm not sure that that uh, uh, the NCAA is going to say, well, OK, then that's fine. You're done. And they may suspend him for more games. And Harbaugh has flirted with going to the pros. And I can see him if the NCAA cracks down and says, you know, half a season or something like that. He'll just leave. Uh, which would be too bad for for us Michigan fans. I sort of bring it up because when I saw the headline, Harbaugh suspended, I thought, okay, here we go. This is the moment where the other schools get into the kind of trouble that Northwestern found itself in. I keep waiting for this Me Too movement, and it still isn't happening. Are you guys surprised that the rest of the country seems to be getting away with it? I'll bet most in this panel right now think other schools are guilty of the same sorts of things that Northwestern is in trouble for, which I guess is general hazing. It's not just the football department. There's three other teams. Two of them are women's programs. Anna, are you surprised that the lay of the land has been relatively quiet on this? I, I feel like, oh my gosh, I totally thought this was going to happen because I thought, okay, now now when one, when one subject went when, when this, something like this comes out, players everywhere feel comfortable suddenly coming forward and reporting it because they know there's a it's it's going to be received in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been a week ago, two weeks ago, or three months ago, whatever it is. And I'm just it's mind boggling to see it hasn't because my suspicion is that general hazing um, does happen on other campuses, does happen with other teams. And maybe it just you can attribute this to as soon as the Northwestern thing happened, other teams immediately came out and just put down a hard line and said, we won't tolerate it. It's over if it ever existed. Now, I'm not aware of those kinds of things happening. I just wonder if if the players were made to feel that some it was being taken seriously suddenly because of Northwestern, and that maybe stemmed the tide of people coming forward. Yeah, all it would take yeah. would be 
would be like one player at Ohio State, just for instance, to come forth and say this is happening there. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and, I'm, and it's un, it's really unthinkable that it doesn't it hasn't happened at Ohio State and and Michigan and Wisconsin and Iowa and Indiana. I mean, this is this is young men playing football and all that that entails and implies. And and I I can't I can't believe it isn't happening everywhere. And I, it's very hard to understand. Anna's probably right. The coaches and players all got together and said, you know, ixnay on the azing hay. But um, well, it was a little late for Fitzgerald, though. I mean, these all were... you would, yeah, all you need is one disc. I mean, there, there are apparently a, a number of disgruntled former Northwestern players who have come out, and I'm sure there are disgruntled players at the other schools too. I, I, I don't. It, it's a mystery to me. What's especially going on. Ohio State, huh, Eric. Especially, especially. <laughs> well, you know, on Ohio State a little bit. Kind of, kind of related to Ohio State. So two things here. Um, one, I there was something that came out recently about the University of Minnesota um, and P.J. Fleck, their head yep. coach. There were some allegations from some players. I, I read it. I looked through some of the stuff, and it, it did feel a little, like, reaching. Um, the big smoking gun would probably be allegedly P.J. Fleck would um, bribe his student-athletes with, like, hey – if you do community service, do something good in the community, you get a FLEC token, basically allowing you to pass a drug test. That's not right. It's against NCAA rules. I don't think that's hazing. Um, so, you know, there's stuff like that. But beyond that, the hazing issue, I would bet it happens at many places. I just wonder, does it happen to the level that Northwestern had it? The stuff that was happening at Northwestern, just me being around co- college football and football campuses and being ingrained in football – I have not seen hazing to that degree. Uh, there's a great documentary that just dropped on Netflix documentary series about the Florida Gators under Urban Meyer. And they talk about how some of the players there felt like they were broken by the program, the, the hazing in a sense that went through it. But the hazing they described was more physical, um, you know, having to endure workouts. Other student athletes didn't having to go through physical challenges others didn't have to. Um, and so I think that is where the line is. The Northwestern stuff was just so it, – it got into, like, sexual harassment, you know? And I, I, I don't know if that is actually happening at more campuses, but I, I can guarantee the hazing itself is. I just think these coaches have a culture they've built where it's kind of a accountability culture and a culture of, hey, this is just kind of the rite of passage, like hazing usually goes when it comes to fraternities, sororities, and all kinds of affiliations like that. It's a fascinating thing. Um, I, I, I do wonder, will we see more come of it? But yeah, so far, nothing yet. I had to smile almost when the news broke that Coach Fitzgerald is volunteering at his son's high school program. Uh, Loyal Academy oh, no. what? is a state power <laughs> in football, and his kid is a junior quarterback. And you think all these years that his kids – and he has another son who's a freshman at Northwestern and presumably is on the team, is going to play on the team. He was recruited to be and was accepted at the team. Then his dad got kicked off, but he's still there. But just think about all of the years that the Fitzgeralds have not been able to watch their kids play or go to their dad's games because maybe they had their own games. So I could understand why it might be, I don't know if nice moment is the right way to put it, but you know how nice that the father now for the worst of circumstances gets to maybe work out with the son on the high school football team. The other thing I wonder though, I was asking a friend who's a Northwestern grad and his kid is going to Northwestern and this kind of dialed in. I said, so have you, has your opinion changed about Pat Fitzgerald? I was on this podcast and elsewhere defending him. I said he's too smart to have allowed this to happen knowingly. But it's getting harder and harder to make that argument. 
Um, we haven't thought about or talked about this for a while. Now, I'll move on to a couple of other things here, but just finish this thought with me, you guys. Where are you with Pat Fitzgerald's culpability in all of this right now? I think I'm kind of blind. I want to be blind, right? Because he's such a likable guy. He's. It seemed like he, look, he, as a player, I followed him, and then as a coach, and he just seemed to have the ultimate respect of everybody around him. And, and it just, God, it makes it so hard. Um, I think, I, I, I do think he, he knew, and I, and I do think that um, he might have just thought that that's the way it is in college sports because that's the way it was when he was there. That's what my friend came up with, too. I mean, it just makes no sense except maybe he went through the same thing before and on some level that's that's part of his psyche that's part of the program you know which is is still nuts but there it is yeah hey, i'm waiting for more reports to come out apparently they're going to be taking another another hard look at what happened there and my thought is that that he probably knew vaguely what was going on and may have not known the specifics of what was going on and that he probably will get another chance to coach somewhere maybe it'll be as a linebackers coach in the nfl or maybe it'll be as an assistant coach somewhere but i do think there are second acts in coaching he's still a i mean he's in his 50s i think right mm-hmm. i mean he's you know young enough to have another have another act uh, and he was a, a good coach uh especially for a certain kind of program um except for the, the hazing stuff and i'm guessing that at some point when we find out more that we may find out that that uh his was a sin of omission rather than commission that he didn't he wasn't on on the ball enough and that may not be enough to end his coaching career yeah i think he's going to coach again i think the nfl thing is is probably very lo- very likely very likely uh, i think either way whether he knew or whether he didn't know either one is pretty fireable if he knew then he allowed a culture knowingly to, to exist that is wrong. If he didn't know, then that's a lack of institutional control. And you as the head coach should know. You you as the head coach of a college football program, you're the CEO of that program. If something's happening on your watch in your program with multiple players and you don't know about it, yeah, like that's 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 not acceptable either. So I think either way, it's a fireable offense. Um, I think his college days are definitely done. Um, I, it reminds me kind of of the Art Bryles situation, even though that's a little bit different. Um, Art Bryles is a coach at Baylor um, who had a series of sexual uh, assault and sexual harassment uh, situations with student athletes on his program uh, happen that he swept under the rug or even allegedly tried to get swept under the rug. Um, and Art Bryles never touched coaching in college ever again. He attempted a little high school. I think he tried to get into NFL, but didn't work out too well for him. The path is Gerald stuff not as severe. I don't. I just don't think the college teams are going or college programs are going to accept him at all yeah. with that hanging over him. Okay, know? so he'll be the linebacker coach for the Bears someday. Huh? <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't even have to move. I think this town would accept that. I think they would be okay with that. Well, I, I, he does. Still, teams still have to think. They still have to think about the PR of it all. They'll hire anybody in the NFL. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I do think that Fitzgerald does need to say more than he has said, uh, and this may come out in the lawsuits that yeah. that filed for and against him. Uh, but he need he does need to come clean in some way or offer a plausible explanation and a, and a mea culpa. And I am not sure that Brandon's right about coaching again at the college level. It might not be a, a big program like Northwestern, but but. Uh, 
I can see him coaching again. And he probably really wants to. He'd probably love to coach his kids. What a good package yeah. deal that would be. Let's do just one other sports topic here real quick. Jerry Reinsdorf might want to sell the White Sox and or let the team go to Nashville. But either way, Vice President Kenny Williams and, and former uh, General Manager Rick Hahn won't be going with them. They were both released. Fired squared, said the Sun-Times today. Brandon, maybe you've got a little more thought about this than I do. Paul Sullivan in the Tribune today said that the job's not over if they're going to clean house over on the south side. What do you think? Yeah, not surprised at the move to eliminate the GM and the VP. It was kind of long overdue. Reinsdorf has a very close relationship with the two of them, so I think I'm sure personal relationships and feelings were involved, too. That's oftentimes why you would keep somebody around so long when a team is underachieving as long as they have. Um, but the results, there's not been good results for the White Sox. So something at the top has to change. What's alarming is reports that allegedly they're still looking at the same crop of guys in that front office to elevate to that position and potentially even having uh, Tony La Russa, the former manager, be a consultant. I don't, I don't understand why. This franchise is obsessed with Tony La Russa, um, especially you look at the makeup of the team, the fact that the players didn't even want Tony La Russa, why even have him part of the program? The whole thing, the, the White Sox need change. The, the logo, the iconography of the White Sox. We have the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. The White Sox logo and brand is so attached to the hip-hop community and the black community. Uh for them to be so bad, they're missing so much opportunity right now and so much money. So at this point, you have to make some sort of change. I just wonder if if you're not going to make a change for the better, you're just going to be on the same straight line of mediocrity. And nobody wants that on the South Side. Do they want the White Sox on the South Side still? Is, I mean, is it, do they- well, that's a big question, too. Let's talk about that. I mean, <laughs> the South Side needs the White Sox. The, white, the South Side wants the White Sox. The idea of them leaving the South Side is baffling. It's wild. But it also feels like a little bit of a ploy. You may recall back in, I believe, the, the late 80s, um, same thing kind of happened. You know, uh, the White Sox wanted to get a new stadium. Uh, the state was playing hardball. And it really came down to the last minute. Uh, the governor at that time, I uh, forgot which governor it was, but ended up going to the assembly floor, went down there and pushed for this vote to happen to give the White Sox the money they needed. And allegedly, Reinsdorf, was, he's been saying that, yeah, his intention was to stay in Chicago the whole time, but he was threatening to leave. I'm wondering if the same thing is at play here. Most franchises at this point, sports franchises, see the money in expanding their stadiums and making their stadiums more than just a sports stadium, making them entertainment centers, making them business districts, making them places where they live and breathe throughout um, the calendar year, not just on game days, like Wrigley Field does, Wrigleyville. But leaving the Chicago area, that would be just weird and a huge mistake. The White Sox, will they? can they ever be – they're always going to be the second team in the city, right? Yeah. Um, that's they, they weren't in two, was it 2005 when they won the World Series? I mean, they they had the city in the palm of their hand back then, right? I think the next year the Cubs outdrew them. Then in, in 2006, <laughs> the Cubs put more people in the stadium than the returning World Series champs. Pete, can you double check that? I just said that on this podcast, and I am 72% sure that is a correct statement on my part. And people still forget that championship happened. You see these these graphics, these infamous graphics of Chicago championships. They always leave out the White Sox. <laughs> they always they did that when NASCAR came time. to town. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they sure did, did a montage of the city of champions and 
oh, yeah, there's that other baseball team. And I think it's a function of the real estate. I think it's a function of that the other team is the Cubs, this iconic team. But if you were going to um, divorce yourself of any attachment to the team or its history or the, the city and its legacy, you would just say, that's a terrible place for a baseball team. Nashville is a better place for a baseball team. Arlington Heights is a better place for a baseball team. In, in this city with five major franchises, and one of them is another baseball team, I don't think the White Sox can be competitive in terms of attendance or dollars or attention. Might there be an open stadium on the lakefront soon? <laughs> I know. I want them to play Soldier well, Field. <laughs> that's one thing I thought about. What if they just switch places? What if the Bears just go to where the Sox Stadium is? You can build it out. And then what if the White Sox just go to Soldier Field, downsize, and look, I, both would be happy, yeah? I think I think that's the solution, Anna. Why is that so stupid? It's an open-air stadium, which baseball (laughs) embraces more than football. It would require some retrofitting, for sure. But where the stadium is too small for an NFL franchise, it's almost... It's too big for a baseball. You could could cozy it in there and make it a baseball park. Let's see here. Is this the attendance for the, the year after... After the Cubs, uh, the White Sox won the World Series in 2005. In 2006, the White Sox drew 2.9 million, and the Cubs drew 3.1 million. They, mm. they, they can't win for winning. They lucky, did everything. Lucky guess. Lucky guess. No, I, no, you, you, I knew you that. Guys, you guys are, are living in the past when when uh, you could play baseball in a, in a football stadium and football in a baseball stadium. They, they tried that in various places. It never worked well. The White Sox are well located. They're right off the red line. Lots of parking. I mean, there's there's really no reason except that the, the, the town has not really embraced the White Sox fully, that they don't sell out more than the Cubs. Wrigley Field's kind of hard to get to. Parking around there is outrageous. And, and Sox Park, whatever it's called, Guaranteed Rate Field now, is, is, is easy to get to. <clears throat> and it's a fairly modern stadium. It's only 30 years old. People are talking about knocking it down already, I guess. Uh, Have you been to the upper deck at Sox Park? Yeah, sure. Do you not don't think lot, that you but... think that's a good idea, the way they did that? <laughs> Well, you know, what I don't think people even feel safe going to a White Sox game. You look over your shoulder a lot <laughs> in this city anymore. Why are you laughing now, Brandon? I don't. I, that's. I don't know. I don't. I don't feel unsafe going to a White Sox game, even though every White Sox game I've been to, there's been a fight. Which <laughs> I but but that's not going to the park. That's in the stands. Really, you're yes, you're yes. in more danger of getting mugged at a Sox game than going to and from a Sox game. Ha ha ha. But if you just talked about why do people not go to White Sox games as much as Cubs games, it's, there's a million reasons. But I think one of them is kind of what Eric inadvertently alluded to. Plenty of parking because there's not plenty of businesses around there because it's on the south side. Red line, schmed line, I think some people feel intimidated by that. I don't think people feel all that safe going to a White Sox game. I don't think that's too provocative well, a statement. I think the safest assumption well, here is to say that the White Sox are, are floating Nashville and the suburbs because they want to get a better deal. Their lease is up in a few years with the stadium, uh, the uh, sports uh, authority, and they're probably just looking for a better deal. And we've seen this before. It was uh, 19, I think it was 88, Brandon's talking about. I think it was Governor Thompson. Mm-hmm. and uh, It was Thompson, yeah. And Speaker Madigan, and they were and they were pretending that the clock hadn't struck midnight yet. And they yeah, were, which is they, so they, clever. It was so it was so Illinois, and, um, <laughs> and, and yeah. the White Sox were uh, supposedly halfway out the door to Tampa, 
But then, of course, uh, in retrospect, it turned out that was pretty much a bluff, even though they had uh, convinced the townsfolk in Tampa that they were serious. I don't think they're serious about Nashville. I don't think Nashville's got a big enough base and or enough going on there. I mean, enough sports going on there to support a Major League Baseball franchise. Could be wrong, but I don't think they're serious about Nashville. What you know, mean? I think a big factor in the attendance that is not being talked about is the fact that the Cubs are a historic, the Wrigley Field's a historic place, right? It's a national draw. So people literally plan vacations and travel from around the world to go to Wrigley Field. So I think that factors into a little bit of the attendance. The Cubs can be terrible, and it's always going to be like a, a touristy thing for people to do is go to a Cubs game, right? Not so much with the White Sox. I, I do think people here locally love the White Sox. But if they ain't playing well, you know, it, do you really want to sit there and watch a losing baseball team? And that's what's been happening the past mm, a lot of a lot of seasons. Yeah. So I, ultimately, if you, if you have a winning product, the people will come, right? Um, they're never going to beat out the Cubs, but that shouldn't be the goal either. The New York Yankees dominate New York. The Mets are never going to beat the Yankees, but... I don't think the Mets should leave New York either, right? Like that's just they're they're ingrained in the city's culture. You can't let that go, you know. Yeah, it's more important for the White Sox to win to get people on the ballpark than the Cubs. Uh, you, you're absolutely right about that. I'm trying to think, trying to understand here with the White Sox is are they being serious or is it is it this negotiating tactic? And I think everyone here on the panel has alluded to it. Like, is is this real or are they just kind of like saying, hey, we need a better deal? Let's do it. But it's interesting because you think about the way Mayor Lightfoot treated the Bears as a full-on bluff, remember? Hey, go ahead and start playing better and worry about that, and boom, suddenly this Arlington Heights thing is real. And so you just you, you, you just got to be so careful with these things. We don't. I don't want them to leave the city. I certainly don't want them to go to Nashville. Maybe that's a, a not, not going to ever happen, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, if Nashville offered them the best deal possible and the stadium of their dreams and a growing market, I, I don't know. Would they, would, they, would they really do it? Um, I, I'd like to say no. I think no, too. But will he go to Arlington Heights even? Will they join the Bears? I, I have no idea. It just feels like they belong there. And I think that um, whatever Brandon Johnson can do to try to keep him there would be great for the city. It would help their case if they would be better right now. They're 20 games under 500. If you wanted to have a little leverage like, hey, you really need this team, this economic engine, this source of Southside pride, it'd be good if you guys didn't suck. Last year they were 81 and 81. They were a 500 club. I had them winning the World Series this year, and turns out they're not the best team in Cook County. The timing could not be worse for them if they were going to try and leverage their franchise. I've, I haven't been watching their attendance figures. Have they been pretty bad? I saw it today. I think they're averaging 21,000, and it's off 170,000 from this point last year. So, yeah, uh, it's tough. It's tough. They're not drawn. Uh, and a summer, like Anna said, one of the best summers we've ever had in the city. It's been nice to go to ballparks. It's been nice to do stuff outside. And they aren't winning, and folks aren't showing up, that's for sure. Speaking of uh, Mayor Johnson, 100 days, I'm going to talk to him, I think, tomorrow. Any suggestions, Anna, when I sit down with him, what do I ask him? What, what do I press him on? Because I could waste the entire little 10-minute window I have on asking him why he fired Allison Arwoody, our city health director. That will be wasted time. That's in the rearview mirror. I'm going to bring it up, but I don't want to dwell on it. What do I need to ask him about? Well, you know what's not in the rearview mirror? And this is a, a mayor who I know deeply cares about the schools, and that's his background. I think that I, I think that 
our school, our children have not recovered from learning loss from the pandemic. Our, our schools, are, I just feel like we, we came up with rewarding our teachers and my sister is a teacher, my parent, my, my whole family teachers, but we, we need outcomes here for our, the school kids. And I feel like in general, we're not we're not the outcomes are not there in terms of coming off the pandemic and helping our kids recover mentally of course that is a huge issue but also academically and when you look at the nation's report card 20% of chicago children are performing at grade level in reading or that's math 21% in reading that that's not a good number and we haven't with with the billions of dollars in federal money thrown at this uh, we we haven't been figured out a way to catch kids up and I will tell you, if you talk about disparities for amongst kids and, and, and racial disparities and income disparities, this is a real issue to me personally, because I feel like I went through the Chicago public schools. I got a great education. I was able to compete with people who came from very different backgrounds from me at Northwestern and Oxford and beyond. I just feel like right now we need to invest in, in students and we need to hold the, the, the system accountable, right? The system has to be accountable for outcomes as well. And I, I just would like to see that. You can't do that in 100 days. But as for his administration, we, we've seen some of the things he've done. he's done to try to help teachers with was it maternity leave or paternity leave and some things that have come up recently. But what are we doing to help our students recover and help them move forward with their lives? There's a lot of kids who, you know, mentally and academically need so much help. These billions of dollars are there. I just haven't seen much in terms of positive outcomes or even programs. Yeah, I would love to hear that. Uh, Pete just reminded me, yeah, it's confirmed he's going to be on with us tomorrow. So here again, (laughs) if you're listening to this before Thursday morning, (laughs) you'll be able to dial in. But even after the fact, what should we have talked about? Well, what what time is it going to be on the air? So people who haven't uh, heard it yet. Um, 1.40 in the afternoon. Good. 1.40. Okay. Uh, I, I would ask him what I was wanting to know during the campaign, which is what is his plan B? when these tax increases that he is that he needs to implement a lot of his progressive uh, and aggressive programs don't come through i mean the idea of a city of city income taxes of of commuter taxes uh he he is going to have a really hard time making that money and that and where's he going to get it if some of these big ideas he has doesn't don't come through um there's always been my real hesitation, my my reluctance to support him fully is that I feel like he doesn't really – he's got a lot of ideas, but he doesn't really know how he's going to fund them. And that was a weakness in his campaign, and I think it's a weakness to this day. Uh, he just he just has apparently agreed to a modified real estate transfer tax that's going to – he thinks is going to raise $100 million uh, by, by increasing the taxes on buildings that sell uh, for over a million dollars. And, and the uh, mansion tax, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, not not every house, the property that sells for more than a million is a mansion. Some of them are three flats, six flats, small apartment buildings, or just like businesses. And uh, and then you're going to have these huge office buildings too that it would be hit with a huge tax. Uh, again, I think it's a good idea. He's only going to get a hundred million out of it. He wanted 160 million with the with the previous plan. So he's. he's I just don't feel like he's been realistic about where the money is going to come from and, and the financial trouble that he is in. And he keeps putting this sunny spin. And the, the Tribune ran a, uh, a full transcript of his interview with Greg Pratt and Alice Yen this morning and online. And and he, my, my, one of my critiques of him is is you know there's an old cliche in politics that you that you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. 
And he is governing in poetry. He is a great talker, talks all about the soul of Chicago and how it's collaborative and reaching out. But it's not, it sounds to me like he's still campaigning. And and that's, you know, that's, again, some of my re- reluctance with him or my, my fears about him, which is like he got himself this job because he was a great campaigner. But is he a great policy guy? Does he is he going to know how to get this stuff done uh, without perhaps the revenue that he's going to need? Or where is he going to get that revenue when when uh, the covid relief funds dry up and the pension bills come due and and all of a sudden reality hits him in the face? Where is he? Where is he going to go? What's his plan B? I think the Tribune piece, they compared him to Lori Lightfoot. They said Lori Lightfoot woke up angry and Brandon Johnson wakes up happy. He's optimistic. He's still, you know, spouting his poetry, Eric. I, I, that's an interesting point. One thing to ask him is your first 100 days, not a lot's been done. You know, uh, compared to other mayors when they get in the position, he hasn't had a lot of legislation put forward, a lot of things he's campaigned on. The chagrin of progressives have not really gone through. Now, there's lots of it building and mounting. Bring Chicago home is, is mounting in city council. Uh, treatment, not trauma. A lot to talk about that. The, the tax increase on high end home sales to end homelessness. All those things are still like in the works, but there's not really been anything started on them. Uh, in these first 100 days, really. So I would just ask him, why the deliberate slow approach? Um, is that is that intentional? Or um, is it because of things behind the scenes or, um, you know, still kind of getting your legs, uh, your land legs, in a sense, when it comes to the mayor position? Because compared to his predecessors, there hasn't been a lot going on these first 100 days. Not a lot of legislation. Um, I'd also ask, I mean, the big question, and Eric kind of referenced it, how are you going to pay for stuff? We got budget coming up here soon. Lots to talk about with pensions. Um, CPS has their issues, especially the busing issue right now that a lot of people aren't talking about. Kids can't even get a bus to get to get to class. That's ridiculous to me. So, like, what's being done on that end? I, I got so many burning questions about that. Yeah, you do. And then lastly, I know I know you wanted one question, but lastly, he talks a lot about with policing when when we have these these gaggles of kids in the South Loop and across Chicago early August. Um, He praised police officers for how they handled it and their response. And he talked about how having a system of care is important, how how policing needs to be a system of care. I'm curious, what does he mean by that? What does a system of care look like in policing? So there's so much that needs to be done that he's campaigned on. And I'm just curious where his mind is with it. You know, what also caught my attention this week was the immigrants who are still, some of them, living in police stations, and they're trying to get into the public schools. I'm so glad that somebody's at least trying to get them into the schools, and a lot of them are. Maybe a couple thousand kids from Venezuela and other places are enrolled in CPS schools. I saw pictures of them. Maybe you did, too, holding mommy and daddy's hand, walking to school first day. And I thought, oh, God, what an oasis we are. I don't know how we're going to afford this or pay for this. Where do these kids live? And some of them are still living in police stations or shelters. And I don't know. Or the if, street. I've, yeah, I'm absolutely. The street. I do, too. I see them. And I think I don't know if this is job one. Like, it's it's so sad but I don't know where it ranks in terms of the things the mayor needs to be solving, right? So we got 13,000 Venezuelans living in the streets or shelters of Chicago. We got 3 million people in the city, and we have other things to do. But I sure hope that somebody can get these people into semi-more permanent housing. (laughs) Who wants to be mayor? I don't. I don't want that job. I don't know what they're supposed to do. But that is on the list. 
And I just had to click out. And there was just one last thing I wanted to bounce off of you guys. Eric, I have been stealing liberally from your post on the Picayune Sentinel about the quintessential Chicago experiences. And some of them I think are so good and some of them I think are wrong or my stuff isn't in there. Why isn't my stuff in there? But this has been a fun chat for us. What what stuff do you want to add? Because I'm I'm following up. I got a whole bunch of email and comments about. I posted a click poll the other day, and people were saying you forgot deep dish pizza, you forgot eating at Manny's, you forgot the Southside Irish Parade, you forgot all. all so and so, I'm going to do another poll with with all the new entries because so many things were forgotten, and people were really mad at me for including <laughs> pineapple on a pizza. Boy, we're, I, I'm telling you, I didn't bust you on the radio on that, but where did that come from? Quintessential Chicago experiences, and you said one of the things should be eating pineapple on a pizza. No, I didn't say it. This, these were all reader responses. You should so not have put a, that in I got there. a couple of readers who said pineapple on a pizza, which, you know, I said, okay, well, I, I'd never had pineapple oh, on a pizza. Oh, I see. Vote. Before. Right. Okay, well, yeah. what were the top vote-getters among the many things your people suggested? Well, right now, I can, I, can, I can take a look right now. Give me just a second. A quintessential Chicago experience. That will be a Cubs game. That will be a Cubs game. But, you know, the thing about that, Brandon, here's where I took issue with some of the stuff Eric said, too, was like, is the quintessential Chicago experience the touristy thing to do? Or is it the thing that maybe people of Chicago really know to do? Anybody can go to a Cubs Except game. The people in the city. But did yeah. you see Blago jogging? Now, that's a Chicago thing. That's <laughs> – you know the neighborhood. You know who he is. You know that's – that's like watching Sasquatch. You go, whoa, I saw it. I got to tell my friends I saw Blago running today. That's well, a Chicago thing. I'll give you the top five from my survey so far. All right. Uh, taking an architectural boat tour, going to Millennium Park, going to the Lincoln Park Zoo, going to a Cubs game, and going to the top of the Willis Tower. Those are the top five. Wow, so, very touristy. Can I add one? I'd love to add one that I think is very quintessential Chicago. Uh, series, series cafe over in the board of trade building, big, poor drinks. Uh, it's a place that so many people gather. It's been featured in the bear. I think that's a place that's very Chicago. It's, it's, it's gotten people fired from their job as police superintendent. (laughs) It's baked into Chicago lore at this point. So that, to me, that's a, it's a central Chicago thing. Whenever I have somebody come to Chicago, I take them to series. I also had on my list, I saw Ronnie Wu. Or heard Ronnie yeah, Wu, Ronnie for Wu-Wu. better or worse. Eric did a poll on that. Most 75% of the people <laughs> that were reading Eric Zorn's Picky and Sentinel said they don't like Ronnie Wu, the guy that goes Whoa. around in a Cubs uniform and goes, Go! 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 By the way, he brings Eric, a got, lot of flair to the games. I think he does. You just don't want to be sitting next to him, right? Like, you don't want nine <laughs> innings of that. You want to see him out in front of the game, and you get your picture taken with him in front of Wrigley. You don't want to sit next to a guy who, for nine innings, goes, Cubbies, woo, Cubbies, woo. I don't know how that guy Good point. is Good able point. to maintain <laughs> that that chant. <laughs> in fact, somebody, Pete, wasn't it? Ronnie Wu, that somebody said he showed up at their wedding. Some of the bride's friends hired him to come to their reception, the wedding reception. So she looks out on the dance floor, and there's Ronnie Wu in his Cubs uniform. Wow. I I didn't know he was available for rent, but evidently (laughs) Ronnie Wu was. that. That might go on your list too, Eric, but I don't know. I don't know. Put that on there. Saw Ronnie Wu at a Cubs game. Saw Blago running. Also, you have drinking Malort on the list, yeah. which is kind yeah. of a Chicago thing because 
anybody who's done it once doesn't want to do it again, but you did it, and you didn't do that in Milwaukee, now did you? So, I, I love Malort, though. I'm one of those people. I, I'll do it again and again. Really? It's great. On purpose? Absolutely. On purpose. I think it has a distinctive flavor to it. Maybe once we you, once should, you take it a few times. Maybe we should bring a bottle to our live Mincing Rascals performance. Yeah. You notice I didn't talk about that at the beginning of the podcast today. All right, here's the last thing we'll say on this week's pod, and that is that the date is now in jeopardy. And it appears as though we're going to try and move it to the following week, same day, the following week. What are you guys doing? Get out your calendars. What would that be? Uh, 26th. The 26th, yeah. Can you make it? I think I fly back in from Mexico that day, but I should be able to. Make it happen. What a better way to spend the day than flying from Mexico, get your bags, <laughs> finally Straight get home, and then say, hey, i got to run over to Second City and talk to John and Eric on a stage. And i got nothing on that day, so I, I'm good for that day. Also. Yeah, pretty much any day I'm available. So we're two and a half, maybe three here. I'll bounce it off of Hanson and Austin Berg, and uh, we'll try and form at least a quorum for Second City that date. So for those of you that circled it on your calendars, circle both dates. Uh, there are a variety of issues I am either not at liberty to or don't want to talk about, but it's going to be more likely than not the 26th. <laughs> but save the 19th just in case we report back to you. And that's where we are on that. All right. All right. Sorry about that, guys. Cool. I know it's frustrating for me, too, but that's where we are. Brandon, good to see you. Anna clicked out. Eric, it's always good to see and hear you. We're produced by Brandon. Je- we're produced by Brandon Pope. Uh, we're produced by. Uh, <laughs> we're inspired by Brandon. Ben Anderson <laughs> and uh, Pete Zimmerman. I'm, I'm pretty sure John Williams will drop another pot on you next week. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 